So, David, first off, we have to make sure that you know the difference between all of those people out there and you. Uh All of those people out there are wanting something. And they want what they've heard about. They want what they know. Many of them are out there wanting Lamborghinis. And all the other people over here are wanting the thing called Arahat. And both groups are miserable because they don't have what they want. And what they actually want is not real. It's just their idea of it. And that in fact, Lamborghinis are well-desired, well-wanted. There's a lot of videos, but actual Lamborghinis, not so much. I've never seen, I have never seen an actual Lamborghini. And I have not ever seen an actual Arahat that's dressed up like a Lamborghini. It's just something that people want. And the whole teaching of the Buddha is to come out of wanting. Yes, I feel I've done this, actually. I, I, I feel like my wants are almost none. I just don't. This is why I want to ordain. I want to try ordination because I see that wanting always leads to dukkha. So therefore, why would I want to want anything? Well, then why ordain and then want to be an Arahat? No, I, I don't. I, I don't even want to be an Arahat. I just, uh, I'm happy just being. All right. Well, now you see, here's something else. We actually, in, let us say within the Sangha, we actually depend upon the 90% of ordinary humanity being stuck in their greed, ill will, and delusion. Why? Because in their greed, they will produce enough stuff, food, etc., orange cloth, etc., so that we don't have to. All of those people out there are actually in the service of the monks. They grow the food, they buy the automobiles to drive the monks around. Let those people do what they're going to do. Mm. And if someone of those people comes to you, then you can actually, in your heart, be grateful for the fact that in their foolish ignorance, they're supporting you. (laughs) And in your infinite wisdom, you allow them to support you happily. But you don't have to fix them, but you can answer their questions. And what happens is, is that though all of those people who are out there growing all of that food and buying all of those cars and all of that kind of stuff, when they come to the Watt and they want to be an Arahat, basically what they're just saying is, I want a Lamborghini. <laughs> they just want. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. And when we see that with wisdom, we can say, wait a minute. Peace and quiet comes from not wanting anything, just being satisfied the way that we are. 
and we don't need fancy labels for being satisfied. That in fact, if you understand dukkha to be defined as dissatisfaction, then getting yourself into a state of satisfaction is all there is to it. And now that you're in a state of satisfaction, you've got all this time on your hands, how are you going to use it? Going from one satisfaction to another satisfaction. But if you think that dukkha does not exist for you, you're going to wind up in a pile of it. You have to maintain that sukha. Because otherwise, ignorantly, you will fall into the dukkha. And one of the big ignorances that exist is there ain't no dukkha. There are no snakes. And if you have that opinion, there are no stakes, we're not watching where we're going, we're going to get bit. If you say there is no dukkha, then you're not paying attention. You're not being on guard. And it's going to bite you. And I see that happening on the internet a lot. People going around claiming things and then getting bit. Okay, a good example of that would be if someone claims to be an Arahat, they become a target by all of the wannabe Arahats. <laughs> oh, you can't be an Arahat before I'm an Arahat. I'm the Arahat around here. You're not the Arahat. <laughs> and so all the Arahats and are sitting in a circle pointing fingers at each and every one of them saying, only me, I'm the only Arahat. You guys are not Arahats. I know, I know. <laughs> and look at the mess they're in. Nobody sees the dukkha. If you can see the dukkha, you can avoid it. And if you can avoid it, you can be happy, you can be satisfying, and you don't need a label for it. Now, within the monkhood, the procedure is, is that if you think that you have gotten something, if you have attained something, there is only one or two people that you should tell about it. Your Achan. Because he may... He's the guy that you want to talk to because he knows you pretty well. And if you go around claiming stuff to him, he's going to set you straight. All the lay people, you go around telling them and they'll go gaga. And some of them will go get rifles. (laughs) Come gunning for you. So it is best not to claim anything. And and not only that, but everybody goes from one mood to the next. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like an Arahat. Sometimes you don't. What happens when you feel like an Arahat and then you advertise it and then sometimes you don't and then they claim that you're not and now you feel really bad? Better to keep our mouths shut about things like that. I feel like everyone has their like all practitioners have different uh definitions of arhat 
oh, we always have to like ask the people, what do they mean? Like when they make this claim that I'm an arhat or whatever, we have to ask them, what do they mean by that? Often they don't even have a definition. They just have some mystical quasi uh, idealistic uh, uh, concept. <laughs> and that wanting mind we always want to make things better we always want to improve we're never ready to be here now the way things are now that as long as you've got words like arahat in the mind you'll always be in the state of wanting to improve getting better for in fact the right way to look at it is you're already okay because then when you're already okay you can see yourself as okay and then you can find the defilements when they come up because you're looking for them Mm. but if you say I'm okay and there are no defilements then we stop looking for defilements and one's going to bite you in the butt I think most uh, Buddhist practitioners and most monks here in Thailand do have like uh, an ideal of an arhat, whatever this means. Like they have this in their mind as like the ideal, and like they have this idea of themselves working towards this ideal. So, what do you think? Well, there's an awful lot of ordinary people out there who were working really hard trying to get something, wanting things like Arahat that they don't have, and they're putting in a whole lot of work to get it. They could just sit down and stop working and just look at what's going on happily. They don't have to work. This is the revolution that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has created in Thailand, but it's still not the majority view, not yet. But it's significant. That's why it's a good idea to associate with the many watch that are associated with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Mm-hmm. I could probably sit here and name 20 watch in Thailand that uh, are dedicated to Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, while there's tens of thousands of those that are not. They're into the ordinary Buddhist religion. And the, the interesting thing is, is that after a monk has been a monk for about 20 years, he doesn't care about any of that stuff anymore. Because he recognizes that that's just the Buddhist religion. That um. The real teachings of the Buddha is not religious. This is and that's and rebirths and reincarnations and magical powers and arahats floating through the air that's all hinduism that's not what the buddha taught mm. he taught dukkha dukkha naroda see the dukkha and sidestep it be on alert watch where you're going mm. and get into that mode and you'll have a happy life mm. 
because you're watching what's going on and you avoid all of the misery in the world. Take the month 20 years to get to that. Pardon? Take the month 20 years to get to that. There's a lot of motorcycle noise. Can you uh, say it again? You said it takes the monks 20 years to get to that point where they realize all this is just magic. Actually, th that may be the case if that monk is around nobles. It's also possible for a monk to be a monk for 20 years and was never around nobles because all the old monks that there are around are not noble. They're still wanting to be arahats. But if a monk is around nobles <clears throat> for a while, he will become noble. So not all monks are nobles, you could say, or? I would say, I don't know the average or the, um, uh, I don't think anybody's actually done any stats. And even if they did, the stats would grow old because times keep changing. But we could safely guess that the number of ordinary people outnumber the nobles probably more than 10 to 1. And that's especially true when all of those people who claim they're noble are actually not. But that's one of the things that you can see. This actually, this is something that you can look up and start watching for. And that is, is that you will not find a monk, a Thai monk, or even Western monks in the Achan um, Sumedho and Achan Cha tradition who claim that they're an Arahat. Even Achan Mahaboa. In Udantani, who died in 19, or excuse me, 2012, he was considered an Arahat by millions of people, but he never claimed it. That's the idea that the, that, uh, the lay people will put on a monk. I don't think any monk should claim any attainment. Like well, of course they don't. That's just because it's against the rules to claim such stuff. Right. So you never hear that. So you never hear it from the monks. Never hear it from the monks. Where do you hear it? From all of these people who have never been monks, done a little bit of practice, wound up feeling good, and go around shouting at the top of their lungs or writing it in books that they write, I am an Arahat, or I am enlightened. We've got a long list of folks like that. Yeah, I think we all know someone like that, yeah. <laughs> Pardon? I think we all know someone like that. Yeah, I know four or five. Mm -hmm. But then again, I think we have to ask these people, what do they mean by this? I mean, they might be our hearts, but we have to ask them. It might, they might be using their own definition of what that means. Yeah. Well, guess what? Is it, po is it even possible that they're going to have mutual? 
I mean, um, look at the argument that happened between the Aliano uh, monk who was living at Berry Center. He's, by the way, this monk is not living with monks. He's living at, with lay people in the Berry Center. And he's the very one who attacked Dan Ingram for being an Arahat, where in fact monks do not attack people. Oh, Biku and Alio. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. it wasn't. It <laughs> wasn't interesting at all. It was human. It was low class finger pointing. Yeah, yeah. That monks should not be doing. Should not be pointing fingers at other people. Yeah. And so it is dangerous for anyone to claim to be an Arahat, especially a layman who has never been ordained. Because then he's going to bring out the worst in all kinds of people. Mm. And why would someone claim such a thing anyway? Let's look at that. Why would someone claim to be something? Uh, like I don't know, West. I think the Western mind wants like uh, to claim like attainment. It wants to claim an attainment. Actually, psychologically. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Actually, and psychologically, it's sort of like an affirmation. When someone claims I am an Arahad, that's almost an aspiration that maybe if I keep saying that I'm an Arahad, I'll become one. As if that's what it takes. But they're still working with the label. What it really takes is mindfulness, sati, to look at what we're doing so that we can avoid this defilement right here in this present moment. As someone who is out there claiming to, uh, be, to be an Arahant does not see the dangers in making such statements and such claims. I, well, I know, uh, for example, uh, Daniel Ingram, he uses the term Arhat in a certain way, and he... Uh, well, he's had to. Yeah. He's had so many shots fired at him from such diverse quarters that the only thing that he can come up with is, is that, oh, well, I have a very special definition of the word Arahat. I'm going to take my Arahat and take it off the playing field because it's too dangerous to put my Arahat out on the field for people to take pot shots at it. Hmm. Thinking that when I use the word Arahat, everybody knows what it means. In fact, everybody thinks they know what it means, but everybody's got a different definition of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't like that term anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, knowing that the monks don't claim anything, if they did, they would claim so 
this goes back to the question I asked, why would anyone claim to be an Arahat? The answer is they see some advantage in either wearing the label or using it as an aspiration to become that. But that wearing of the label is often done to be an advantage, for instance, in the time of the Buddha, and in fact, still in Thailand. They think that, <clears throat> yeah, I, can, I get merit by feeding a, a monk, but if I feed an arahat, I get better merit. Mm-hmm. And if I feed an arahat on his birthday, that's super duper good merit. Mm-hmm. Magical thinking, yeah. Magical thinking, and the world is filled with magical thinking. Therefore, the guy will say, I'm an Arahat in order to gain benefits of food, benefits of students, high respect, just because of a word. Mm. And just to, um, to round that off, on Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's birthday, the whole Wat, it started long ago, and over time it became a tradition that the entire Wat fast. The kitchen's not open. The monks don't go on bend about. Nothing happens on Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's birthday to prevent that very thing because otherwise the parking lot would be full of buses of people in white clothes bringing the best food that they can afford, all expecting Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to eat their food too. Uh, <laughs> uh, funny. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> I'm glad they did that. Well, it's a good example of us to show that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa did not hold any much attention to those kind of things. That, in fact, the story is, there's actually two stories about it. Uh, are two different stories about the basically the same issue and that is is that the story is is that when and by the way the Thai people would never embarrass themselves to do such a stupid thing but westerners would go right up to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and say are you enlightened (laughs) the Thai people know better They know not to ask such foolish questions, but Westerners, they would go right up and ask him, are you enlightened? Guess what his answer was that actually became quite famous? I don't know. Who or what is it that can become enlightened? Which is another way of, uh, that's even a better way of asking the question is, what do you mean by enlightenment? Uh-huh. Because anybody who's going to go up to ask Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, is, is, is he enlightened? Why don't you just watch Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and make your own choices? Uh-huh. Because it's your opinion of him that's important to you anyway. Uh-huh. And so when someone asks me such a stupid question like that, I will always give them a silly answer the same. 
<laughs> and part of the answer is, is that it doesn't matter what my opinion of me is to you. Your opinion is what matters to you. So form your own opinion of me. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I like that response. So I don't have to. I don't have to form your opinion for you. You can form your own opinions. I take the easy way out. <laughs> now, the other story about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan um, Po and Watso and Mok is people going and wanting to talk about rebirth and reincarnation. And the and the what standard answer from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, anybody who is uh, stays at Watso and Mok knows this answer. And if anybody comes up and asks the questions and new students come and ask on a regular basis, the answer is, oh, if you want to talk about rebirth and reincarnation, go down the street there. There's plenty of watch down there. They'd be happy to talk to you about it. We're not interested in rebirth and reincarnation. We're interested in this present moment, not long times ago and way off into the future. So if you want to talk about long times ago and way off into the future, go talk to somebody who is interested in that stuff. Mm. I, I think there's a lot of monks that are interested in that sort of stuff. Right. Poor dudes. Here they are <laughs> in their robes, wasting their time and effort in suffering, wanting things they don't have when they could just be a monk and just hang out and have a marvelous life. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I'll let somebody else talk about rebirth, reincarnation, because in fact, it's the same mindset. The people who are interested in Arahad are the same people who are interested in rebirth and reincarnation. Mm. And it doesn't matter how much they learn, no matter how many gurus they go to, no matter how long they mull it over and think over it in their mind, they're not going to make any changes. You're worried about things that don't really matter. Mm. So that that leads us into questions and the way that answers are given as is kind of a, um, uh, a generalized thing. And that is, is that uh, for each question that has a yes or no answer, there are actually six answers. Right. So let's take, are you an Arahat? Or is there rebirth and reincarnation? Because those are yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. Right? And one of the answers is, yes, rebirth exists. And no, rebirth does not exist. But according to the Buddha, that's not enough. In fact, that whole point is a comma, good action and bad actions. 
where in fact a third answer is it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you feel reborn and sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's the same old stuff over and over again and the over and over is being reborn. And sometimes the over and over again is, oh, poor me, I'm stuck in the same place and I want to be reborn and I can't. And so it's the both at the same time. There's also the possibility of neither one, that we really don't know what's going on. Which leads us then to step five. And that is, is that the correct answer generally is I don't know. Because we don't know the answer to those questions. So why should we play the, um, uh, the, let us say, the high school and collegiate game of having a test? Yeah, you yeah. know, all the tests are multiple choices and you're supposed to guess. If you don't know the right answer, take a guess. You might get it right. Mm. Uh huh. And so we're off into the world of playing a guessing game. Our whole life becomes a guessing game. And instead of guessing, we could recognize the reality of it is, is that we don't know. Nobody knows. I think uh, a lot of the monks do think they know because they've had an experience uh, of a but past life. But that was life. a mental experience. Yeah, you can dream having a past life. Is that actually a past life? This is what I was trying to get them to understand this. Like I was, I was asking the questions like, okay, so say someone has had an experience of a past life, but how do you verify that that's a past life? I, I just, I find I couldn't get a straight answer from this. And well, that's yeah. because there is no straight answer. That's the whole point is, is that all past life experiences are experiences of the mind in this time. Right here, right, right now, they're having an experience. Right. And off they go into, oh, this is old. This is in the past. Yeah, I know. It's exactly what I... This is how I was thinking, like, how do you like, OK, so I have a dream at night. It's a crazy dream of a past life. But that doesn't mean it's my past. Why life. do you have to label it, label it as a past life? Why don't you just label it as a dream? Yeah, <laughs> but I feel so many people don't understand this. Most of them don't. The 90 percent don't get this and they still want things that they don't have. Like they want to know all about rebirth and reincarnation instead of just accepting they don't have a clue. They don't have any information. There is not one shred of evidence in any museum or on any archaeological site or any place else. It's all mental. Hmm. Which then leads to the sixth answer. The fifth answer is, I don't know. And nobody does. If there is, in fact, no evidence one way or another, and there's no possibility of any evidence one way or another, then how the existence of rebirth and reincarnation can affect you? Because there's no evidence of it. Okay. If there is, in fact, no evidence to test, to check to see one way or the other, that means that actually it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The sixth answer is, I don't care. I don't care. The fifth answer is, I don't know. And the sixth answer is, I don't care because it doesn't affect. 
But you see, people who are worried about it, it affects them. They affect them with their questions. They become burning questions. They get hot. They want answers. They'll make up answers because they don't like the burning questions. I think most people would think there is tons of evidence for rebirth, actually. Pardon? I think uh, most people would think that there's tons of evidence for rebirth, actually. Uh-huh. All right. Let's mm -hmm. put it this way. Yes, they will say that. Yeah. Now, let's take a different tact because it's sim uh, something similar. Many, many years ago on television, there was a dis um, uh, on the um, uh, uh, cable. They had many channels like the History Channel and the Learning Channel. And that one of the things that they would do, uh, regular shows happen once a week for an hour, is, is that this television crew and this announcer and this philosopher or professor or someone who supposedly knows all about it would go to one haunted house after another. They did all the castles in Europe. They did the bayou in Louisiana. They did all the famous houses of every one of them that they could find because this is a TV series once a week for years. And they would play the spooky music on the video and they would have the strange camera angles and the guys would keep asking them questions. Well, what about this and what about that? Leading the audience to believe that they were on to something. And at the end of the show, every one of them they would come up and admit they got nothing. <laughs> they got and so nothing. spooks have been thoroughly, thoroughly investigated and no evidence. And yet look how many stories are still about it. People want that stuff to exist. Basically, what it really is down to is fear of death. If there's going to be rebirth and reincarnation, that means when it's over, it ain't over yet, and I'll have another go at it. <laughs> and therefore, I don't have to worry about the fear of death. But the Buddha, in fact, talks about it in the sense of the charnel ground meditations and all kinds of other stuff is to be aware that your time is limited, that you're going to die. Get not just get over it and get used to it, but look forward to it. Allow yourself to think of death in a happy way. Which brings up uh, the story of um, Houdini. Do you know the story about Houdini? Uh, Houdini, he was like a magician. He was a magician. He was one of the world class musician, magi magicians who could do all kinds of prestidigitations. But he was still... Even though he had gained all of those skills, he gained those skills because he wanted to know. And after he gained those skills, he still wanted to know. And hmm. what he did then is he went and started watching. In fact, part of the skills that he developed was by looking at other um, magicians and picking up their tricks. So later in life, he went after the actual charlatans. You see, there's a difference between a magician and a charlatan. They, they do the same magic tricks, but one of them says, this is stage magic and we all know it. 
And what your job is, is to figure out what I did that was caused the delusion in reality. The charlatan is saying, oh, no, you got to believe that the magic trick that I just pulled was supernatural. Mm-hmm. And that I deserve credit for being able to do supernatural stuff. Mm. Okay, so Houdini went after the seances. Now, the, in the United States, seances were really popular. They yeah. even did seances in the White House. There was a seance done over the dead son of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So it, it goes back that far. And then during the early 1920s and 1930s, it was hot stuff. Mm-hmm making headlines in newspapers and all of that kind of stuff. And there was a couple of sisters, I forget and forgot their names, who were in Chicago. And Houdini went to, went to them several times because he couldn't figure out what they were doing until he noticed something. What did he notice? That one of these women, when they got up to go to the door or to take care of business or to do anything in the room, they would take their shoes off where they were sitting and walk around barefoot. And when they sat back down, she put her shoes back on. (laughs) All right. And that led Houdini to understand that under the carpet was a wire attached to that shoe. And she could move it to the left or to the right or up and down and cause thumps and noises and all kinds of apparitions to show up. And it was all just magic prestidigitation, Mm. a magic show. But she was a charlatan because she ripped people off left, right, and center, telling these people, this is actually your daddy's um, uh, dead uh, spook in the room here with us. (laughs) You give me money because I can make a thumping sound and talk you into believing it's grandpa. And he exposed them. Houdini exposed them all, or at least enough of them that put seances out of business. I bet there's only one seance left now. And that's done once a year on Houdini's birthday in Las Vegas to where all of the magicians, will uh, Penn and Teller and the guy with the lions and all of that, they'll get together and have a joke seance inviting Houdini to come back because one of the last things that he said when he when he died he just says if I can come back I will guess what he ain't come back and they have a seance for him to come back every year and he don't come back and they make a big joke of it but don't they don't do seances anymore and back in the 1930s people were changing money by the millions of dollars over seances. Okay, with the seances been um, uh, debunked and with the uh, the History Channel debunking every spooky house in the world because they went to every one of them that they could find. Mm. Oh, you got a spooky house here? Oh, we're going to set up all of our electronic equipment and hang out in that house overnight, et cetera, like that, and see if we can find any spooks. We'll even set out milk and cookies for them like Santa Claus. (laughs) 
Okay. And we still come back to there is no evidence anywhere. If there is no evidence anywhere, then doesn't that make the whole idea kind of irrelevant? But, yeah, it should, but it, the people, yeah. they don't believe that there's no evidence. Well, that's still a belief. The reality is, the real evidence is there is no evidence, only stories, which was all it was in the first place, stories. And people will work really hard to make their stories convincing because they can gain some advantage. If they can make you believe that that was Uncle Henry that made that sound in this room, then that seance operator can make some pain, some cash. Fast forward to today's enlightened gurus. They're in it for the money. What else can they be in it for? They're wanting something to claim that they're an Arahant. And the easiest way to see is, is that if somebody claims to be an Arahant or claims to be enlightened, go look at their history to see have they ever ordained or not. Because if they have ordained, they're not going to say stuff like that. Mm. And why would anybody ordain except to do that kind of stuff? So right from the very beginning, you can see that they're charlatans. And yet the web is full of uh, Western Buddhists who want that stuff to be true. You want it to be true. You want it to be uh, Arahats walking around all over the place. You want rebirth and reincarnation to exist. Because if it does, then you can see it, you can find it, you'll know for sure, and then the doubts will go away. When you recognize that it's actually irrelevant, your doubts will go away. You don't need to doubt about it because it's, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The question is, can you sit down and be happy with or without rebirth? Can you sit down and be happy and put a smile on your face with or without the label of Erhat? Can you sit down and be happy and enthusiastic about the Dhamma and really gleeful for the Dhamma with or without the label of stream entry or uh, Sotapan? Those labels are irrelevant. What is relevant is can you put a smile on it? Can you be happy in this moment? Can you be satisfied right now? That's what's relevant. And most of the people who are wanting Arahat, they're not satisfied. Those who claim to be Arahat, they're not satisfied. Those who claim to be enlightened, they're not satisfied. So here's a question for you. If you had the choice between being enlightened and being satisfied, which would you choose? You see, because the enlightened ones are not satisfied yet. But if you're satisfied, then you don't even need to be enlightened. I would prefer to be satisfied than be enlightened. 
And not only that, but if it leaked out that I was an Arahat or I was enlightened, then I'm going to be attracting all of these uh, gun-toting bloodshot makers. I've become a target. I don't even know what that word means, enlightenment. To be enlightened, what does that even mean? All right. I'll give you a working technical definition. Yeah. All right. So the many word def- enlightenment has has two qualities. Both of them are the word light, right? Okay. Like daylight. Shine a light on it. Let's lighten okay. this. Let's 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 see what's going on. Let's um, um, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? You've heard all of this kind of stuff. Okay, so basically what that means is, is that when we can see things clearly, that's Mm. knowledge of reality, the reality. You can see that what I think and what I experience and what I have coming into the senses match, and that's congruent. Mm. All right, and with satisfaction, we don't need anything else. Just being satisfied because... That's what the Buddha taught anyway. Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. End your dissatisfaction, and you don't need magical words or terms to get out of suffering. In fact, magical words and terms and wanting this and that ones are the Dukkha. And we can drop all of that stuff and just be happy, just be satisfied. Even drop the word enlightenment, just drop that. Right. So let's go to that word now and look at the next part of it. And that is light as opposed to not heavy. You set it down. Set down the word enlightenment and you'll be lighter. We don't need to carry that word around. We can just set it down. And then we're free from it. So become free from the labels and just enjoy the moment. Just be satisfied. That's what the Buddha taught. Right. But mostly people have their own ideas about enlightenment, that in fact, if people did have the knowledge to see what was going on in this present moment and see what's a defilement and what is not a defilement, they can set those defilements down. That's real enlightenment. But saying I don't have any defilements, that is unrealistic. Yeah, so uh, when you let go of the defilements, it could be said that there is reality there. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's stop there for a second. When one is free from the defilement, sounds like a long, long-term thing. That's back, back into the world of rebirth and reincarnation. Why don't we say, in this moment, this defilement? This, yeah, that's what I mean. So in this moment, when there's, when the mind is free of defilements, reality is here. And there's and, a light. And, and, and that's in the suttas directly. That when. Uh, the person comes to the state when they know that no matter what kind of obstructions, what kind of defilements, what kind of enlightenment, what kind of arahat, what kind of sotapan, what kind of jhana, whatever comes into the mind, he can throw that stuff out and come back to the present moment and see how things really are. This is the first step of the noble path. 
to be able to set those hindrances and all of those concepts down and come back to the present moment is noble. That's uh, sort of like enlightenment here and now. It's re reality. When the mind is free of defilements, you're satisfied. That is like right here, right now. That's it. That's the enlightenment. Let's not worry about the future. Let's develop this skill so that when we have the future, we'll have the skills with it. Just right now, are there any defilements? Looky, looky, wakey, wakey, see what's going on right now. And wanted to be an arahat, that's a defilement. Mm. And saying that you are an arahat and putting that kind of defilement in another person's mind is dukkha also, going around claiming that you've got something, whether you have it or not. Mm. Even saying is, you've got, like, are you, uh, you do jhanas, is this a defilement? Like, maybe you're just talking to people and say, like, yeah, I want, Wanting jhanas, telling people, I've got jhana, um, all of that kind of stuff is a defilement. Never mind, start again, get yourself into a good state. And people mm. do that, and then that's first jhana. But going around and claiming I've had first jhana, that's a defilement. I imagine there has been untold misery happened in the past, let us say, 72 hours over not the actual death of Bhante Bielamaramsi, but all the crap that's been said about him since he died. Big defilements out there. Really? What is being said, Nick? Pardon? What is being said? Well, one of the things that's easy enough to see is, is that one guy says, oh, well, I went and I read a sutra to the dead corpse. And he and it became enlightened. It became uh, an arahat, the dead corpse. I don't read it. I don't. Yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> it's on the Internet. People believe it. People, other people don't. And then they fight with each other. Hmm. There was a whole lot of other stuff said. I just didn't want to pay any attention to it. I, I turned it off. I wasn't interested in all of the defilements that were said in the eulogy. I guess it would be a eulogy. Uh, so could you please just say again uh, why, like, a uh, general conversation, like discussing the jhanas, like discussing the... Uh, the states of jhana, like why that would be a defilement, like because the jhana oh, is. You're missing the point again. I'll oh, yeah. describe it again. Yes. When you're talking to someone about what are the details, what are the methods, why don't you do it right now? That's wholesome. Mm. But if you go around saying, I have first jhana, 
That's unwholesome. Yeah, yeah. Not Blaming not things, putting the person in it, making it selfish. Mm. Yeah. It's a defilement. Putting it's self in it. It's a selfish thing to talk about. Couldn't put the person in it, yeah. But mm-hmm. I think uh, talking about the jaundice is okay if you don't put the selfishness in it. Right. All right, so that comes to the, the, the issue of, well, how can someone, let us use Jhana as an example, how can someone tell you what are the details of it, what are, what are, what are the processes, what are the steps to take, et cetera, like that? Isn't that kind of a sideways um, admission? That if somebody knows the details, yeah, and when they give out those details, is that an admission that they have the jhana or not? Usually, they know how they do it. Yeah, they, uh, good, the answer uh, is no. It's not an admission out of the mouth of the guy who is giving the description of the jhana, and oh. yes, and it's a defilement in the mind of the listener when he's making that connection. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a student says, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He must have been there and done that in order to talk about it. And that's an assumption that's being made. And in fact, people can talk perfectly well about the jhanas having read them in the suttas. Mm, but never have. And entered. never experienced, but he can still talk about it because he's got the knowledge out of a book rather than out of direct experience. So, in this regard of not making that mistake, this is one of the reasons why the monks are forbidden to talk to lay people about certain things, including the jhanas. And it's really, really hard for us to uh, convince. In fact, I've got it on a video someplace to where we were talking about how to approach a monk and what to talk about, and what we can do when we go to the Wat. And this guy was only interested in Fort Jhana. Oh, I want to talk to the monk about the Fort Jhana. Well, you don't talk about to the monks Fort Jhana, especially the first time that you meet him. If he has been your teacher for two or three years and been teaching you, then it's okay to ask those kind of questions. But you just don't walk into a Wat and start confronting the monks with things that they are forbidden by the Paddy Monk to talk about. Mm-hmm. And this guy got really hot and bothered. Now he doesn't want to go to the watch because he can't control the conversation at the watch. And because he can't control the conversation at the watch, why should he bother to go? This is on video? Yeah, I've got that on video. Huh. <laughs> is it okay for monks to describe? The experience of jhana from right. like a th- the monks don't talk about that because it creates jealousy in the mind of the listeners they can't talk about so you jhana. don't say i have done this or i have done that in spiritual attainment I, senses yeah. monks yeah, don't talk about it yeah not in first person language but like third person like just to- Describe it in like third person words. Well, 
Um, let us say that in that regard, third person here means not personal. Not me, not you, just in the abstract. That in fact, that's how the Dhamma should be taught. You don't criticize a person directly. For instance, you don't call somebody a liar and tell them to stop lying. What you do is you talk about the detriments of lying. Mm -hmm. We don't confront people over their, their, their misery and their, their stuff. We talk about it in generalized form so that there is no possibility. Hopefully there's no possibility of people taking things personally. And that's what we're talking about here is taking things and saying things personally. And that causes jealousy, it causes animosity, it causes monks to write long uh, articles about somebody being wrong about something. That in fact, generally, it's the Western monks who can't behave themselves. You would not find a Thai monk criticizing Daniel Ingram, but you'll find a Western monk to do that. Like an Analia. <laughs> We've got examples of it, huh? <laughs> and so I know that this is kind of subtle for most people, but maybe the easy way to, to, to talk about it would be to recognize that when we put ourselves in it, then there's the defilement, the me in there. And when we talk about it in the abstract, then there is just information with no knees, no eyes. Right, right, right. So when we say there are those who are worthy of gifts and worthy of respect, then there's no problem with that because they, they do exist. But when we go around saying, I'm an Arahat, that's the problem. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. It's making the statement that's the problem. Mm. Yeah. The same thing is true about, I know rebirth and reincarnation exists because I've had experiences. The answer is, no, you've had experiences and you put the word rebirth and reincarnation on your experiences. Made it personal. Mm. Me. I, me, mine. And as Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is famous for saying, nothing is worth clinging to as I, me, or mine. And who or what is it to become enlightened? I mean, if someone is enlightened, then he is um, no longer a someone. If there are no defilements, where's the person? There is no person. That's why the first better is the personality view. Let's come out of who I am and start investigating dukkha instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
We're not investigating me and who am I, and I'm an Arahat or what's my past or what's my future or where have I been, who am I? All of those kind of questions the Buddha refers to them in Sutta number two in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Saba Asaba Sutta, as a thicket of views, not worthy of our attention. And what is worthy of our attention? This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is what it's like to be free from suffering. And this is the way that we do that. Paying attention to the Four Noble Truths. So anytime that someone is talking about Four Noble Truths, we do it in the abstract generally. But when people start talking about Arahat, Enlightenment, Jhanas and all of that, it's almost always personal. And so let's take personality out. One of the things that I heard from Achan Po so often that I actually remember when I hear the words in my mind, I hear it in his voice. And what is that phrase? Not sure. Not sure. Not sure. Stay in a state of not sure. Be comfortable with not sure. A lot of people don't like not sure because it gives them doubt and it gives them worry and heartburn and all of that when they're not sure because they're supposed to be sure about things. But true happiness can come when you're not sure and that's okay. I don't need it. I don't need to know all of that stuff. Not sure. And now I can just sit down and be comfortable. Sabai. Sanuk, and everything is easy. Don't know and don't care. (laughs) I don't, I don't care. And I don't know. Right. <laughs> and, that, and that's okay. I'm, high, I'm happy. I don't know and I don't care and I'm not sure and I can still be happy. Can still be satisfied. Mm. So that's the way to do it. Go around just being satisfied. And when monks claim this or that, they likely don't. But when they do, never mind. You're not sure. Stay with not sure. Mm. Because that's that that has the quality of staying open. If we if we are not sure, then whatever happens, we'll take that as new data. Right, and right. we'll probably come back to the conclusion again that we're not sure. <laughs> 
the new data didn't help resolve the issue. Mm. And so we remain in the state of not sure. And if we are sure, we'll probably miss the data that we don't like. That's called confirmation bias. I feel that so many people are sure, though. Mm hmm. So many There's, people. Are sure. Yeah, they are sure. Why? Because they want it so bad. What they're really sure about it is that they want it to be true. That's what they're sure about. Yeah, they want to be sure. About their past life experience that they had, they had a experience that they want to be sure about. Yeah, this was my past life. Mm hmm. And guess what? Whatever it was, your past life is gone now. And by worrying and thinking about what the past life was, we're missing out on the here now. Now that past life could have been 10 years ago. It could have been done when it was 10 years old. We can have a past life experience of being five years old. And remember, past is past. Past lives are past lives are gone. The, de the, the past is dead. Whether it was 10 million years ago or 10,000 years ago or 10 lifetimes ago or 10 minutes ago, it's in the past. Mm. And let's be here now. You know, it's kind of funny that this belief in rebirth is so deeply stuck in the human mind, basically because it attacks the number one issue of fear of death. Oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. goes against the, uh, it, it's the whole issue of the uh, um, self-preservation instinct, the survival instinct naturally gravitates towards, I will survive. This is why we see every religion has some claim about the afterlife. Every one of them, right. That's why they can get so much money. It's not like a bank. If you go put your money in the bank, you can withdraw it out of the bank. If you go put your money in a religion, you've got to die to get your money out of it. Every religion has an afterlife, every one of them. That's what they sell. That's their product. And mm. people want that product so badly. They'll mm. spend any amount of money sometimes in order to, to feel that that they're safe. And the reality is, is that we're not sure. Can we feel safe and, and be not sure? You see, that's what the whole point of warning rebirth and reincarnation is, is that it gives us finally safety. Mm. I would say offhand the same thing about Arahat. Claiming to be an Arahat gives someone a feeling of safety until they realize what a stupid thing that was, it's not safe at all. <laughs> so 
but we have the, the feeling, oh, I have arrived. Oh, I don't have to deal with defilements anymore. Oh, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. Finally, I have arrived. And so they claim that they're an arahat, and then somebody nails them for it. Then they're not so secure after all. And they have to go, oh, well, I've got a special definition of the word arahat. I'm an Erhard according to the definition I give it. And we start playing dodgeball that way. A lot of work. It's better to just stay in the state of not sure. Sometimes I feel like a nut, sometimes I don't. Let's watch what's going on. Pay attention. David, you don't know how many times I've had to explain this to students and still people claim. They still claim they can't just recognize it's okay to not know. Yeah. No, I I, I don't uh, believe anything. I don't uh, uh, have an opinion what happens after death or what happens before my birth. Or I don't hold any beliefs or view that this. For me, it's not important. It's a little hard to hear you. You're breaking up. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, for me, I, I don't care what happens after my death or what came before my birth. I, I just don't care. I don't think anyone knows or can know this information. So therefore, I just uh, not sure. So I just I'm there's happy. another way of looking at it. And that other way of looking at it is, is that I don't know what death is. I haven't experienced it. It's something like going to sleep or passing out. And I've been there and I know what that's about, but I've never died before. I'm really curious about it. Let me be there for that last mind moment. Let me know that I'm dying so that I can really pay close attention and get some really super duper happy thoughts going. And then we'll take it from there, or actually we'll just let it go from there. But pay attention. What is death like? What is dying like? What is death like? If we watch closely, seeing what's there, then maybe we'll figure out this stupid question that everybody's asking, is there rebirth and reincarnation? Because nobody knows. Well, maybe maybe the right question is the only people who do know are the dead. Only the dead know. And maybe we have to make sure that we're using a different word for no. Because maybe they don't know that you're dead. Uh. Maybe dead is just dead. Mm. But we don't know. We don't Pay know. attention. Look at what's going on. I've heard you said that there's a chance, a Buddhist chance, that something along the lines of death is the highest peace. But uh, yes, that's I, in the suttas. In fact, that's in the funeral chant. Yeah, but isn't that sort of making a claim about death, like making 
That, that well, that's clearly obvious, isn't it? I mean, e any electrician, any uh, uh, mechanical engineer can say and show you that if you're alive and you can't breathe, you're struggling. If you are alive and at peace, you're still breathing and breathing is work. Yeah. Up and down it's motion. When you stop breathing because you're dead, isn't mm -hmm. your body at peace? Yeah. It's not breathing anymore. It's just laying there. It's just, you know, growing cold. It's nibbana'd. Yeah. That's the highest peace. The highest nibbana is being dead. <laughs> being alive has got a certain amount of work to it, now doesn't it? It does. It's and what, and yeah. because you want to be alive, you put in that work. You're willing to take that next breath. And when you stop breathing, then that's more peaceful than breathing. So indeed, death is the highest peace. And everybody knows that. I mean, they even put it on the tombstones, rest in peace. But I feel that's still uh, making a claim about death because who is to say that there won't be an experience after that that may not be peaceful? Well, we don't know, do we? We don't know, yeah. But what we do know is the one who died, that dead piece of meat ain't breathing. It's yes. at peace, it's at rest. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's at peace and it's at rest whether somebody's performing a ceremony over it or not. So, of course, if you have a ceremony over a corpse, it's going to be an arahat. Of course it is. Everybody's like that. Ain't nothing special about some old monk who died, and now he's at peace. Every, even grandpa, grumpy old grandpa, when he dies, he ain't grumpy anymore. He's at peace. Right, right. I hear you can even become enlightened after you're dead. Uh, the, the corpse can become enlightened. Well, that's what happened to Vila Maramsi, so they say, so one guy says. The Mormon church still has their ceremonies over ancestors who have been dead for generations. But if you pay the church enough money, they'll do a ceremony, and now that old ancestor is now at rest, at peace. But he probably was already. I mean, we're just making sure we're going to pay the church a whole lot of money to make sure. <laughs> I always I was wondered about like uh, visiting temples here in Thailand. Sometimes you see like uh, like a whole the whole temple is just like ancestors, like photos of ancestors, like the whole wall is just hundreds of these people and the front yard yeah yeah the big dudes in the village they're all uh got stupas of their own chetties yeah yeah there's entire businesses in thailand of going to the and what they do is everything is done with either cement or paint and they'll they'll cement a uh, um a, a pedestal and put a birdhouse on it 
and they sell those for good money. And so the ashes of the dead are put into that, and you take all of those uh, 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 miniature mausoleums and decorate the whole front yard of the Watt. Well, what are you going to do with it anyway? So that's the memorial. I mean, at least uh, within Thailand, there are no large vacant areas of land set aside as cemeteries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point, yeah. I don't see that. Mm -hmm. You won't find a cemetery hardly anywhere in Thailand except for the Chinese Mahayana. Hmm. So on this island, I know of about three or four graves. Of all the thousands of people who have died on this island, there's only three or four graves. Hmm. So uh, the Thai people typically will just uh, have a memorial at the Wat for their ancestor, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cremation. That in fact, when I was first here in Thailand, the first several um, funerals that I went to at Wat So and Mok, I assumed that they were done that way all over Thailand. But during those years, every Wat that does funerals has built a crematorium with natural gas and all of that kind of stuff. And you can tell a crematorium because it's the only one that has a chimney high into the air that in fact Wat Po right over here they've got a, a, a crematorium also a lot of Wats have crematoriums they used to bury uh, excuse me they used to have all of those funerals out in the, the the pasture out in the field and that they traditionally would use banana trees as the stalk so they would dig holes and take the banana stalk and shove that in the hole because banana trees have a lot of water in them and they don't burn very well. And this would be the uh, the outlying areas of the funeral pyre would be standing stalks of banana trees. And then they would put all kinds of wood and whatnot in it. And then uh, the body either in a box or outside of a box would be laid upon that. And then everybody comes around with candles and incense and matches, especially candles, and throw those candles onto that fire so that it burns and burns and burns, and people would be doing that for hours of putting those candles on. Now that they have the crematorium, they just shut the door and let the gas do it. Mm. But in the old days, it took a lot of work to burn a body, a lot of candles, a lot of wood. But the ceremonies are basically the same for those who, um, let us say, were attached to the one who was dead. How many funerals have you ever been to? How many funerals have you ever been to? In uh, any religion? Maybe just like four. Uh, four or five, okay. How many funerals of those that you have been to, how many funerals have you been to to where the person who had died, you didn't know him at all? Complete stranger. Uh, oh. 
that makes a point. I mean, um, funerals are not entertainment. Nobody goes to a funeral unless they've got a good reason to go to that funeral. They had feelings about the guy who was dead. So only his friends and enemies are going to go to his funeral. Hmm. Yeah. So here's a question for you. The guy dies. Let us say that you've got the head man of the village. He's the head uh, deacon at the church. And that he, in fact, dies right out in the public square. And everybody sees this out in the public square that day, sees Mm. him die. Mm. Then everybody gathers into the church who knew him to have the funeral, right? Now, let's have that same guy out in the wilderness, far away from this village, and he dies. Mm -hmm. There's no funeral. There's no burial. Nobody knows anything. Okay, what's the difference in the afterlife of that person? Once he died in full view and everybody felt bad and everybody had a big funeral or he dies way out in the wilderness and nobody knows. What's the difference? No, we don't know. We the answer is again, I don't know and I don't care. So in order to stop a fuss, wouldn't it be better for us just to walk out into the wilderness and croak rather than do it in the village? It's caused a lot of trouble. But people want to do it in the village because they want to be known. It's all about the ego. Oh, it's me. Mm. Mm -hmm. But if you have compassion for all those people, you just go out and die on your own in the wilderness where nobody knows. You say, you think most people want a funeral because they want it's like the ego. They wants. want to be remembered. It's the it's uh, the the nesting instinct. It's our society. Even though we have absolutely as dead no need for the society anymore, still we cling to that society in the form of having funerals. Mm. And they think of it as a tragedy of war when you have mass graves, when you just got to go bury everybody and you just throw them in a pit, put some lime on it and put some dirt over it. Let it be. People don't like that. Oh, I want an individual funeral. I want people to remember me. And the question is, what's the value of a funeral? The answer is, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't care. Uh, I think it's... Go ahead. For the people that knew that person, for them to have some closure, I guess. uh, Why? Why do we want closure? Because we don't like the doubt. We don't like being unsure. You don't like being unsure. Right. You want closure. Mm. Yes, 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 of course. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if someone in your family died, wouldn't you rather them die in uh, op- like their death to be known by someone, or would you want their death to be in the forest where no one knows about their death? Be uh, be aware that I'm a- uh, about to tell a very happy story. Okay. Everybody in my family are dead. <laughs> Everybody who has any kind of DNA that's anything like my DNA, they're all dead now, and I'm free of it. No more family. Let them rest in peace. Mm. When my mother died, I was in Thailand. No way I'm going to go back to the United States to go to her funeral. Let the people who want to have a funeral for her pay the money and have them have a funeral. She had a big funeral. Nobody missed me. My mom was dead. I don't know her anything. All debts are paid on death. <laughs> and so I don't owe anybody a, a funeral visit. Now, to, to round that out and to make sure that we understand it, monks do go to funerals. I went to a lot of funerals when I was a monk in the United States because they didn't have enough monks to go around. And so each month we did a lot of funerals. But we did the funerals because of the lay supporters at the Watt were grieving. These were our fins in grief. So the monks are there to help the people come out of their grief about the dead. Otherwise, the monks don't care about the dead. Mm. Right. And so let's go with that whole point about nothing matters. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. So developing the concept of I don't know and I don't care. Not sure. Then you can have a happy life. If you go around wanting to make sure of everything, you got a lot of work to do. You're going to have to chase people right into the grave to see how they decompose to make sure that they're dead. Mm. <laughs> and all kinds of mental delusions and all kinds of concepts about what it, what is death. And the answer is, really, we don't know. Hmm. And because there is no evidence, there is no effect, there's no cause and effect in that reality that we can see, I don't care. It's not my problem, not my business. Hmm. Which goes along with one of the things my dad said. Very little of what my dad said I ever kept, but this is one of the things that I kept when he would say work 
because he was actually very physical. He was a blue collar worker. He, he read meters and he fitted pipes and he wired houses and all kinds of stuff for four furnaces and that. And so he would say, work, I'm not afraid of work. I can sit down or even lay down beside it and take a nap. I'm not afraid of work. Mm. Okay, so be not afraid of the things that you're doubtful about. You can lay down beside work. You can lay down beside reincarnation and take a nap. You can lay down right down beside the air hot and take a nap. I don't care. Mm. I'm not afraid of it. I don't know it. I'm not sure. But because of that, I don't care. And so bringing that don't care attitude means is that when you don't care, and I use that specifically, which means we don't carry. We don't keep it. We don't care for it. And therefore, we can set it down and be free from it. Moksha. Vimuti. Out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most people, uh, yeah, I feel it takes people not caring. It's like you're breaking up. Speak up again. Uh, Most people cannot come to the point of not caring. It's I know rare. they care so much. They're taught to care. They're supposed to care. Mm. Caring, they care enough to start a war, they care. Caring is dukkha. Pain and caring is dukkha, exactly. <sighs> Don't care. Don't care. Not my business. And what a relief that is. Just freaking, oh, wow, I don't have to care about that. Rebirth and reincarnation, I don't care. But I can also see how those who do care, they give themselves a whole lot of worry. Because they care. And they don't know. And they care. They don't know and they care. Mm-hmm. They don't know about rebirth, but they still Yeah, they don't know. But they care enough about it to claim they know. If they don't know about it, why do they care about it? Because they're afraid. It's the fear. Fear of the unknown. Uh, Fear of death. And so they care all about it. hmm. And they don't know. Because of their fear. It's true, though, that some monks... A very senior monks uh, do uh, believe in rebirth and do care about it and do teach that. Uh, well, they do it because that's the way that they were taught. They do it that way because of the traditions, etc., like that. That belief in rebirth and reincarnation was, uh, let us say, uh, nibbling away at the heels of Buddhism from day one. 
not one person in the time of the Buddha came to the Buddha in the state of don't know and don't care. All of them did. The Brahmins owned the place. The Brahmins ran the show. And everybody believed in all of that kind of stuff from the very beginning. And Buddhism has had to work with that issue for 2,500 years, sometimes being successful and sometimes not, of teaching the people who actually care about the Dhamma to stop caring about rebirth and reincarnation. It's irrelevant. Now, there is something else that I can help you with with that. And that is, is that, well, why do we teach the precepts to the children? And why is the precepts taught to the children using rebirth? To get them to do uh, what they're told. To get them to do what they're told to do, exactly. And in fear, we go along to get along. We do what we're told to do, hoping to get some reward, but not really ever getting any reward for all the work that we've been doing. So back to the precepts, we could actually say that one of the reasons why we teach the precepts to children the way that we do is because they're too stupid Mm. to get the point. The point is, is that if you hurt somebody, if you kill them intentionally, you're already feeling bad before you do it. You feel good. You feel bad when you're doing it. And then you feel bad after you're doing it. When you're angry at someone, let us say someone across town, you opened an email or you got some information and now you really are pissed off at that guy and he doesn't know you're pissed off. Who's (laughs) suffering? The one who you are angry at, because that's the one you want to suffer. Or is it you, the angry one, who is suffering? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? So, if we can see it like that, then why don't we stop being angry and stop trying to fix things that we can't fix? The answer to that is the children are too stupid to see that. Mm. And so we have to scare them. We have to use that same instinct, the self-preservation instinct to say, if you do what something that I tell you not to do, I'm going to beat your fanny and put the fear of them, you know, that you will have retribution. We will punish you if you break our rules. And if you think that you can get away with it, we're going to hire police. We're going to hire um, uh, an army. We're going to get some aunts and some uncles and some teachers and some grandpas, and we're going to really make sure that you understand you got to do what you're told to do, and you can't get away with it. And then they say, and (laughs) if you still think that you can get away with it, we're going to go get a priest. We're going to go get a monk. We're going to go get somebody who was going to tell you that even if you're dead, you can't get away with it. Uh And so that's why rebirth and reincarnation are so deeply wrapped up with precepts and rules is because we want to use the thread of having punishment after death in order to control people's behavior in the here now. But if they are wise, they will control their behavior in the here now because they can see the dukkha. Mm-hmm. 
So the precepts and rebirth and reincarnation for simply for stupid people who can't see the dukkha. And okay. so we promise them a whole bunch of dukkha a whole long later. Uh, <laughs> they can't see cause and effect. They cannot see the cause. Once someone can see cause and effect, we don't need rebirth and reincarnation and uh, uh, future and past punishments. And so most people are too stupid to see cause and effect. Mm -hmm. That's but why the teaching of rebirth and reincarnation is so useful. It's because people are too stupid to see it for themselves. But I feel that uh, even uh, some people, they spend their life in the Dhamma, like these senior monks, they see cause and effect over and over again. They understand cause and effect, but they still believe in this. Well, they may talk about it because they expect the lay people who they're talking about to believe it. You might, in fact, if you, if you uh, know how to ask the questions, you may, in fact, be able to get uh, to that monk to say, hey, we, let's talk about noble stuff. You're talking about ordinary things that ordinary people believe in. Yeah. Let's start talking about some noble things. And yeah. if you can get the monk to start talking about noble stuff, he'll stop talking about that, that stuff. Here's, here's actually something that I know of that happened. I, I was a good friend of the guy. His name actually is David, and I knew him as David, but he was a monk uh, or, ordained in the United States and living in Thailand. And um, that he had to go to the visa because his visas weren't straightened out yet. He went to KL, to Kuala Lumpur. And while he was there getting his visa, he just happened to have gone to the big Thai Wat in Kuala Lumpur. And Surprise, surprise, the head monk was not a Thai. He was Sri Lankan. Why was he Sri Lankan? Well, because a lot of Sri Lankans in Tamils and whatnot come to Malaysia. They have been for a long time. So uh, David walked in to the uh, to the temple or to the uh, the boat, the big uh, 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 the concert hall where they sing. And uh, uh, this abbot was talking to a Chinese lay person, an elderly Chinese woman. And they were speaking in English rather than either Tamil or uh, uh, Sri Lankan or Chinese. The common language was English. And so he was talking to her about the funeral arrangements for her dead husband. Mm -hmm. when, when David heard what was going on, he says, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Uh -huh. I don't, because uh, he's come from Watson Milk, you see. And he's uh -huh. listening to this stuff, all of this rebirth and reincarnation and death and all of that kind of stuff. But he hung around and waited for this Sri Lankan monk to finish with the old Chinese lady, and she left. And okay. so now David can approach the guy, and in the first conversation, David tells him that he came from Watson Milk. And this guy's eyes lit right up uh -huh. and they immediately started talking about noble stuff that, in uh -huh. fact, this monk was acting like he believed in rebirth and reincarnation because he was dealing with a grieving woman at the time. Yeah, yeah. 
And and so when, especially in Western Watts, when any Westerner goes into a Western Watts, we assume, the monks will assume, that this guy is an idiot. If he were truly a wise man, he would have already been here years ago. So here he comes walking in as an idiot, as a fool, as a uh, nobody knows anything. And the first thing that they're going to start teaching them is basic Buddhism 101 for children. Mm. <laughs> and so the monks will talk about rebirth and reincarnation to get you into the frame of reference of you've got to start watching your behavior. Mm. Once you get the point of you got to watch your behavior, you don't need the stories of rebirth and reincarnation anymore. Begin to check that out with the monks. To say you don't need rebirth and reincarnation, you need a noble teaching instead, that you're not a child, you don't need to hear the precepts, that let's get, let's get into the real teaching of the Buddha, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. You'd be surprised how many monks will do that. Wow. <laughs> I wonder They're how... They're teaching rebirth and reincarnation because they expect their audience to want to hear it. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't really care. Yeah, I, I prefer not to hear it. It's cool if, if that's what they want to talk about. All right, we can talk about that, but I feel like I don't really care about that. Well, you can tell the monk, I don't care about rebirth and reincarnation. I've got some Dhamma that I want to look into and see what he says to that. Do you think that's like uh, disrespectful to say, like, I don't care about this part of the Dhamma? Like that they, well, that's not part of the Dhamma. That's the whole point. Well, they, you do care about the Dhamma, and you can tell them that you do care about the Dhamma. Uh, you don't need to care about old Indian stories. To them, though, it's part of the Dhamma, I think, right? To the monk, it, it is like rebirth. That's part of the Dhamma. Not part of the Buddha Dhamma. The Buddha's Dhamma is Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Not Dukkha now, die in Dukkha, and then be reborn and you've still got Dukkha. That's not the teaching of the Buddha. Right, right. Yeah, I know. But in fact, if you've run across a young monk that doesn't know what the Dhamma really is, you might be able to help him figure it out. Because mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of uh, belief. They come to the Wat with that belief. They got it from their childhood, from their family. And when they got to the Wat, nobody bothered to teach them. Mainly because they weren't asking the right questions. And that's why nobility has become kind of compartmentalized and and kind of secreted away within the Sangha. Because the, the, the style is, is that the right student has the right has to ask the right questions at the right time to the right teacher. And when the right student asks the right question to the right time to the right teacher, he will have that noble door open to him. But we do not go around banging on doors and breaking doors down in order to deliver the noble Dhamma. Buddhism doesn't proselyze. Because if you actually confront people's hardcore beliefs, they won't like that at all. You got to wait until they start questioning their hardcore beliefs. 
So if you're able to tell Vermont that you're talking to that, hey, you, you're beyond even questioning that stuff that you know that you don't know and that that's OK. Let's talk about what we could do today. This is a this is a very good discussion. I really <laughs> appreciate this. Yeah, it's very insightful. Uh, in like probably over two hours, I think. So that's okay. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Even though I've said it so many times before, I like that you're you're hearing, you're listening. Yeah. You're yeah. not arguing with me, and that's that's the key. Yeah. No, I, I I've heard this before too. Actually, I've heard it. Oh, quite a bit of the stuff you're talking about before from yourself and, and I I embody a lot of this stuff already. I, I, I'm trying to embody like I'm not sure like just yeah yeah to, to me I, I just feel like I don't care about things that I don't know. So mm -hmm. uh, well there is certainly uh, room for you within the the noble Thai Sangha in Thailand. We just have to find out where the right place is for you. Mm. And that what you're doing now, I fully agree with. Go do this. The question that you'll really have to look at is not are you going to go into the robes, but are you going to follow the procedure of coming out of the robes at the end of the panza, or are you going to stay in the robes? Yes, yes. I don't know this. Because if you just choose to stay in the robes, then you and I have a whole lot of stuff to talk about. If I choose to stay in the robes. Pardon? If I choose to stay in the robes. Sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah. If you decide to stay in the robes, you and I have a whole lot of stuff to talk about. Actually, if you come out of the robes, you and I have a whole lot of stuff to talk about, but it's different stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Different, different things to talk about, yeah. Yeah, and there's still things to talk about. Right, right. If you stay in the robes, now the question is, where are you going to go? What student? Where? Uh, what teachers do you want to have? Right, How right. can you locate a good teacher, and that kind of stuff? Because I've got some ideas. Yeah, really. It's a. I heard though the monks cannot really leave their the temple that they ordain at for a while with permission with permission right you have to have the permission of the upajaya then in fact um uh when a when a newly ordained monk um wants to travel or um has the opportunity or is ordered to travel there's always three monks involved with it the upajaya the abbot of the wat that you're leaving and the abbot of the wat that you're going to and they will make that arrangement for you. But if you give them a suggestion, they may go for it. If you say, hey, I want to go stay with Achan Po on Koh Samui, they'll get together, rub their cheeks and say, okay. And then they'll call Achan Po and get him involved. And Achan Po says, oh, I'm too old. I don't, <laughs> want, another, I don't want another student. Send yeah. him someplace else. And then they'll say, no, you can't go to Watsu and Mok. Uh he is saying that, right? 
Ajahn Poe. Uh-huh. He has been saying that, Ajahn Poe. Uh, I haven't heard him say that, but I've certainly seen the evidence of it. Uh-huh. But I was just using that as an example. But you know some like good senior noble monks that I could just uh, yes I do I certainly do in fact the one that I'm thinking of right now is in Royette. There's that. Royette. Uh, I've forgotten his name, but he was the one who found Eric and took him to Royette. But Eric is now in um, uh, a what in um, um, Laos, and he's learning the lessons from there. In fact, what what Eric said was, is that this what is not challenging enough for me. Uh-huh. I want to, because uh, it's really up in the woods, it's really laid back, there's really nothing happening, and there was no challenge for him. And you know what my response to be that was that? Oh, uh-huh. you sound like you're really challenged by not having a challenge. Uh-huh. That woke him right up. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> not having a challenge is quite challenging for Westerners. What does that mean, though? A challenge, like what is that? In terms of well, con- confrontation, stuff to do, places to go, events to happen, funerals to go to, all kinds of stuff. You know, activities uh, okay, okay. that would challenge him. And the answer is, is nothing's happening, and that's a challenge. That, it's that a matter could, of time structuring. Yeah, very challenging. Here he goes, all of this work and everything to find a place of peace and quiet. And when he finds a place of peace and quiet, he gets bored with being <laughs> peace and quiet. He wants some action. <laughs> all right. And the answer is, no, just be peace and quiet. Mm-hmm. Hang out in the woods. No place to go and nothing to do is real now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's all kinds of things. Let's let's put this first thing in first. So go ahead and get ordained and do what you're going to do, mm-hmm. and then call me and we'll figure it out from there. Cool. Awesome. Okay, I'll do it. David, I really enjoyed our talk. Likewise. Thank you so much, Samarato. Yeah, okay. Uh, All right. We'll see you. See you later.